0: Welcome to the Amber Knight Superhero Podcast with Simo Suahamo. This show is your backstage pass to discussions with world-class influencers in the field of health and high performance. We bring you the selected tips and insights that you can use to upgrade your life and become unstoppable.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Superhero Podcast. I'm your host, Simo Suahema, and Today, I'm joined on the show by Dr. Ali Benazir.
0: How you all doing?
1: So awesome to have you here. Dr. Ali is an MD, a licensed hypnotherapist, an author of four books. He studied at Cambridge and Harvard, and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about something you like to call happiness engineering.
0: Thank you for having me, Simo.
1: But first, you've written four books, and right before starting the recording, we were just talking about how you like to tie all that together, and I think, I think it's a really exciting story, so I would love if you could share it with us.
0: Yeah, so I started out wanting to become a scientist, a scientist-physician, went to medical school, was going to do an MD-PhD, and the whole idea was, hey, let's help cure people and make them healthier. And... I got a better sense of what medicine involves. And it seems like it involves, in most cases, at least in the U.S., in fixing broken things. And I'm much more interested in keeping people healthy. So, you know, I ended up not practicing as a physician formally. But I did take a class in clinical hypnotherapy while I was in medical school. And what was really interesting about hypnosis was that if it didn't work, well, it doesn't work. And there are no side effects. But if it does work, it works remarkably well. And I was on the track to become a psychiatrist. And I realized, wow, here is a way of giving people power to solve their own problems and really heal as opposed to just be treated temporarily. And they no longer need a crutch like a pill to take forever. So I thought that was really powerful. And of course, and I forgot about it completely and went off and did some work in corporate America, worked at McKinsey and Company in the biotech sector. And uh, I recognized that that really wasn't my thing. And uh, it wasn't a good fit for me. So I thought, okay, how can I put my money where my mouth is and and really help people at the same time be independent? So that's when I started writing books. So that was 2005. And since then, I've written a bunch of books, and uh, two of them are called The Tau of Dating, the one I am probably best known for is called The Tau of Dating, The Smart Woman's Guide to Being Absolutely Resistible. There's the uh, parallel book for men. And uh, I also b- wrote a book about medical school, should I go to medical school? And... All of these fall under the umbrella of helping people become happier and healthier and and flourish as human beings and just live fulfilled and fulfilling lives. So that's where it all comes from. And that's where the latest project comes from. It's called Happiness Engineering. And it's about really designing your life around this thing called happiness and well-being and, and long-term joy and flourishing, as opposed to these temporary milestones or these symbols of happiness, such as status, money, and power. And what I noticed was that uh, there I was in in the United States of America, in these very high-achieving cities like San Francisco and Boston and Los Angeles, I noticed that I had a lot of friends who were nominally successful. They were doing well. They had money. They had beautiful homes. uh, They had relationships. They had great jobs and yet they didn't seem to be all that happy or healthy. So I'm like, hmm, what's going on here? So you can have the signs of success, but yet not really be successful. So I thought it was time to redefine our notion of success. And that's what I really appreciate about a country like Finland, which is that I think they have a sense of what real happiness is. And you know, the symbols, they're aware of the symbols, but they go straight for the substance of you know, community and communing with nature and a good work-life balance and doing meaningful work. So how do we implement that into somebody's life? That was, that's the challenge of, of this book that I'm working on and the talks that I do in, in most of my work. Why are we as human
1: beings so poor at engineering our own happiness? Like looking at happiness from a holistic perspective, like what makes us like so out of touch with what makes us
0: happy? Yeah, so that's a great question because when I started this project a few years ago, first I thought, man, people are stupid. Why are they doing all this dumb stuff to themselves, right? And then I realized it's not so simple. It turns out that your brain actually doesn't really care about your being happy. Your brain cares about you surviving. So your brain is all about... You know, there's a bear, you need to outrun it. There's some food, you may not have some tomorrow, so eat as much as you possibly can right now, because there's also a refrigeration. The history of our evolution is a history of living without refrigerators, without supermarkets, and, you know, using these primitive spears to hunt down animals that move around. So it wasn't so simple. So you were designed to survive. And so the prerogative of survival massively overwhelmed the little idea of, oh, I think we should be happy too. So we now live in this unprecedented time in the history of mankind where all these things that used to be survival uh, factors, like, you know, food, like, you know, shelter, all this stuff is kind of provided for us. We have way too much food, so people are now, you know, getting fat and you don't have to chase it down. So, now all that time you have to make yourself miserable because <laughs> your brain is still that thing that used to be running you on the savannah trying to chase down an animal and now it doesn't have to do that. It's like, oh, now what do I do? So now you're chasing down things that you don't really need, like expensive cars and bigger home and status. And, and you know, status used to be something that was essential to survival. So you had this tribe and maybe there's 150 members of the tribe, right? And food was scarce. So if you are high, if you're at the top of the hierarchy of the tribe, then when the food came in, you got fed, right? But if you were at the bottom, you don't get fed, perhaps, right? So you may have to wait a couple of rounds before you get fed. So that whole status anxiety had real survival value. Whereas now it doesn't really, I mean, it's like, oh, I'm not on the cover of a magazine. That person is who cares, right? It doesn't really <laughs> right. matter. And and fame actually kind of makes you miserable. If you ask any famous person, they will tell you. So, so this whole idea of like status, money, power becoming these symbols that people chase down is because you have that primitive programming that still wants to chase down, you know, the the higher rank in the tribe, that still wants to make sure you get fed, and also wants to make sure that you have offspring. And it used to be, if you like do the genetic studies, only 40% of all men in history have their genes go to the next generation. So only 40%. Only 40%. Women, 80%. So if you're a woman, you're doing pretty well. Somebody is going to be willing to knock you up eventually. But if you're a guy, who knows, right? Whereas now, that's not even a concern, right? So basically, everybody kind of gets married eventually. It all works out. So, And then you have all these forces that are conspiring to make you unhappy. So for example, you have these very large food companies that have billions of dollars at their disposal to hire really smart people, scientists to design foods, to trigger all those little addictive circuits in your brain, the dopamine that makes you really happy supposedly. And so you're like, Ooh, chocolate, Ooh, bacon, or I mean, bacon, real bacon is not food. People, you (laughs) cannot eat bacon. Okay. It's got nitrites and it's like this ball of like, fat and salt and stuff like that so and these are designed to addict you so people get addicted to foods and then suddenly they're overweight and now they can't move as much when you don't move as much you're not happy it restricts your range of motion socially all kinds of bad stuff happens so you just became an instrument to your own misery right but it's partially because there's all these ads on tv saying eat this or you need this and you didn't really need that I haven't had a TV in over 20 years and whenever I see it, I'm sitting at a bar and I see an ad, it's so jarring because it's like somebody is in my home selling me stuff. What is up with this? I hadn't asked for this, right? But it's happening all the time and people think it's normal. It's not normal. It's not normal. A- and then <laughs> and then you have stuff like urban sprawl or people living in cities and you know people commute and there is nothing in the world that will make you more miserable, more reliably than commuting because every time it's different. You can't get used to it. So people will willingly... Take a home that's 40 minutes away from work. And then if there's traffic, maybe it's an hour. And then you have to do it twice a day. And twice a day, every day, that's 10 hours a week. That's 40 hours a month. That's 480 hours a year. What else could you be doing with that time, right? Besides making yourself miserable. So there's all these forces that have conspired to make us miserable. There's the ancient programming that doesn't want to make you miserable, but it's still kind of there. And so you're behaving in those ways like, oh, scarce food, I got my eat. So you have to be super vigilant and train yourself to be happy. And that is the challenge of modern living.
1: Just living in modern society. We were just talking about this briefly when we were uh, foraging mushrooms at the national park two days ago. And uh, what really struck me was our discussion combined with that experience of how, Firstly, we shape our environments, how our environment shapes us, and what are the tools and the, the methods that we can employ without moving to the woods or, mm. or becoming full-time cavemen yeah. in order to take control of our happiness in this modern society? It's
0: a great question. That's why it's important to design your life around happiness. So most people, whether they know it or not, are designing their lives around status, money, power uh, to get to the next thing, man. And so the happiness is hopefully a byproduct of getting there, but you may not get there. And the example that I use when I give my talks is as I take a restaurant menu and I say, hey, you know, I'm kind of hungry. Hey, this looks delicious. I crumple up and I eat it. People go, what the hell, right? (laughs) I'm like, yeah, that's pretty weird, isn't it? It's almost as weird as taking the symbols of happiness and mistaking them for the real thing. So, and the idea is that nobody would eat a menu and expect themselves to be fed and nourished. So nobody should think that somehow status, money, and power is going to bring them happiness either. So what you want to do is, so there's five areas that I focus on. And the idea is that these are five areas that if you don't take care of them, you will be miserable. Guaranteed. No question about it. If you do take care of them, there's an outside chance that your baseline setting of being a happy person, which I believe is isn't everybody. I mean, we are our natural state is that of happiness. If you do this, then there's a chance for the natural state to come out, and you become much more robust. And things come in from the outside, you know, insults, various events can happen, and you will still be pretty okay. You'll be happy. And I also want to make a distinction between happiness like la tra la la jumping through the fields and being smiley and the whole idea of long-term well-being we're talking about contentment we're talking about setting your life up for the next 10 20 30 you know 80 years such that you're basically okay with everything that happens and one one of my one of my friends calls it meta okayness meta okayness yeah it's like everything happens i'm okay about it you know car crashed yeah i'm alive i'm kind of cool with it. Friend, you know, got married. That's awesome. I'm good with it. Right. So it's not about we because we is not sustainable. And this we're talking about sustainability here. So and that's about kind of more of a Buddhist mentality of just kind of, mm, you know, equanimity and contentment. So the first of the five is head and shoulders, just more important than the other ones. It's just it's the one thing that has proven over and over in scientific studies to be the most important aspect of your happiness, and that is relationships. So I talk about primary love relationship, friends, and family. So these are the three main aspects of it. And the idea is that robust, healthy relationships are the prime contributor to overall health, happiness, longevity, everything. There was a study... Done, which I believe is still going on. It's called the Harvard Grant Study. And it was done with the Harvard classes of 1939 to 1942. And this cohort were such illustrious people as John F. Kennedy and Norman Mailer, who are now dead because 75 is a long time for a study to be going on. <laughs> Some of these people are still alive, actually, they're in their 90s. And what they found above and beyond all was that. Happiness equals love. So, good relationships and you're good. And it also had a protective effect. So, you could have other parts of your life being not so great, but if you had robust relationships, boom, you were still doing pretty good. So, and you had these people who had this horrible life and, you know, just failure after failure, drugs and accidents and stuff like that. And then the guy marries a good woman and then, boom everything gets better. So Suddenly makes it all all great again. Makes it all great. It's amazing. So, and you know, the converse of that is that you can have somebody who's pretty okay and he makes a bad choice. And for those of you who are listening who've gone through a divorce or even just a breakup, you know how much misery that can bring onto your life. So, picking the right person is really important. So, when it comes to that primary love relationship, that's the biggest decision of your life. And the crazy thing is most people kind of leave that to chance. I mean, they think they're not, but Falling in love is one of those mechanisms that evolution has put in that doesn't really care about your happiness. It just wants you to reproduce. It just wants you to make babies. So what happens is people fall in love with someone, right? And they go into this state called limerence, which is a fancy way of saying falling in love. you are like, oh, this person the greatest thing ever. Oh my God. So most beautiful woman, most beautiful guy in the world. And this lasts between, on average, 18 months, between 18 and 30 months, and and what happens is that in that state your brain looks like the brain of a cocaine addict. I mean you can scan the brain of the cocaine addict and the person who is in love and limerence and they look remarkably similar.
1: So if you stick them both in an fMRI you yeah. can know you wouldn't know the difference. You can tell the, least, the difference yeah. exactly. Wow. So so yeah. So
0: so the point is if I tell people, "Hey man, the other day I got really wasted. I went to this car dealership and I bought a new car." People are like that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Why would you? Why would you do such a thing? Right? But somebody else says, "Hey, you know, I fell in with, fell in love with this girl. I married her. They're like, oh, that's awesome, right? Same exact thing. Except marrying is a much bigger ticket decision than buying a car. You can always sell the car, but man, marriage—that's serious. So, one bit of top line advice that I give people, which is completely useless because they're not going to listen anyway, which is, <laughs> but the idea is, we could try. If, if you're going to have a relationship and have it last a long time, then make that decision when you're not in love. Make that decision when you're not in love. Exactly. And you know, in love may happen later, but you should decide based on whether this person is a good fit or not. Hmm. And you know, I'm in Helsinki right now and this town has a lot of very very good-looking women, right? So I'm That's walking right. down the street, I'm falling in love like, you know, 12 times a minute, right? If I acted on that, if I got married twelve times in a minute, that'd be a really difficult life. So you don't want to do that, right? And and the thing is, I know myself enough such that when I hear that circuit of my brain was like, oh wow, look at her, she's so beautiful, this should be perfect, she's amazing. But I'm like, okay, we've gone down this road before. This is nice, but whatever. I mean, just and and I think one of the chief skills of adulthood is being able to think. And feel independently of circumstance. So you see something and you know you see this, you feel the surge inside your body, you feel, oh, I must get, must get. Whether that's you know cheesecake, chocolate, or cute girl, your ability to step back and evaluate the situation and say, hey, is this actually good for me? That is one of the key skills of adulthood. And if you can do that, you will do very, very well because. You no know, impulse control means that you're going to do crazy stuff that's not, not going to be making you happy. So anyway, that's relationships. So for those of you who are in a relationship and want to perpetuate it, I think like the biggest problem is people start to take each other for granted. So you meet this person, and it's like, oh, wow, this person is so amazing, so exotic, so exciting. And that's what draws you together. So you can get to know each other better and become intimate. And what happens in intimacy is that things get old, right? So that exact same thing that brought you together is the thing that creates the taking for grantedness and and as you get to know somebody better and better you think oh now i know this person this person's old hat the spouse becomes part of the furniture Uh -uh. you can't be doing that right and here's the thing no matter how long you've been with your current partner you don't know that person very well at all You, you may not even know that person half as well as you think you do so it is important to continue that process of discovery. And and what I encourage people to do is have a novelty night. So novelty no, night. Novelty night. So novelty night is basically, so it's kind of like date night, but what you're doing is on novelty night, you will deliberately do something new together. Mm. Yeah, because... Something no,
1: you've never done together?
0: Exactly. Or something that neither of you has ever done, right? So whether it's taking a class on Italian cooking or going to uh, learn how to do pottery or going hiking in some new forest or, you know, picking berries or whatever it is. You want to do something that neither of you has done before. Because what happens when you do novel things is your brain starts to produce that dopamine stuff. And dopamine is that same neurotransmitter that you used to produce when you were in love, when you were totally into this new person. So you get together, you do these things together, boom, that spark of novelty Creates that those juices going in your brain again. And so the relationship starts to refresh. Mm. And if you do that once a week and if you keep on doing that, guess what? Things are going to feel different. And amazing. And, you know, look, it's a challenge. And and the thing is, you have to actually sit down, put on the schedule, pick new and exciting things to do. Relationships are work. And I I think of relationships as kind of like fitness, right? You can't just say, Well, you know, 20 years ago, we went to a church and we had a great workout together. I'm fit. (laughs) I'm good. I have to work out again. How about showering? Yeah, I showered 10 years ago, too. No, you keep on doing it, right? So That's a great analogy. Yeah. So you have to keep on doing it. Otherwise, you'll be out of shape and smelly. So relationships, this is the work of relationships. You actually, first of all, recognize that the person that you're with is completely exotic and unknown to you because they are, right? You don't know them yet. And two, you actually put in the effort of doing novel things. And and the book that does a really good job of covering this whole idea of of you know the exotic and the exciting become old hat and, and, and because of intimacy is the book by Esther Perel, Mating in Captivity. Great name. Mating in Captivity. Yeah, so it's a great book. If you are in a long term relationship, you pick that up and read it, listen to it. She has a lot of good things to say. I believe she also has a podcast, so check her out. Esther Perel, a lot of good things to say.
1: Amazing. So when you're looking at relationships as an example of kind of rekindling that initial period where you're very high on dopamine, you get intense signals all the time just by being close, being with that person. And when the novelty wears out and you start building these habits into your relationship, I think it's a very strategic way of looking at what's actually happening in our brain Mm -hmm. and what's actually happening in our daily life and and seeing that there's a massive connection between the habits and between the sense of connection we feel to that person, the sense of of having a loving and, and caring relationship. What other tips or tools are there to kind of maintain that spark, if you will?
0: Yeah. So I think that the novelty night's a very good way of starting it. And just the whole idea of recognizing that every person that you know is a projection from your mind. Mm. So you have not taken the time to really access what that person is really like and who they really are. And you may never have access. You can get closer and closer and closer. But recognizing that and recognizing that you know, you have this movie running in your head and you're the star of that movie and everybody else is kind of a secondary bit character, right? Guess what? That partner also has that movie in which you are the secondary character. So just put yourself in their movie and notice what that's like. And also you'll get a better sense of how you are seen in the relationship because they also have certain expectations, certain projections of you. So, the more you recognize that's what's happening and the less you take it personally and the more you put an in effort into getting to know that person, the better you will do. At the same time, it's also important to constantly remind yourself of the fit, the whole idea of fit. And and it all comes down to really values. Like, do you share the same values? And do you also have the same meta-emotional style. So people think that, oh, we both are into kayaking, therefore we get along. But when you kayak, You go in the water and it's like, oh, this is beautiful, this is amazing. And, you know, water splashes and it's like, oh, look, I got a little sea water. This is, I'm so one with nature. Whereas the other person's like gritting their teeth like, ah, this is terrible, this sucks. This is bad weather, blah, blah, right? So it's not about that thing that you have in common. It's about how you deal with the incoming stimulus of the world, experiences. That's what really matters.
1: To what extent should for lack of a better word, the optimal partners share the same values because this is something that I've had many interesting discussions with, including a couple of people who are experts in relationships. And I would love to hear your take on this. Yeah,
0: So I am, by the way, not a relationship expert at all. So I've written books about dating. So I, I help people have the problem. Once you have it, you're on your own, buddy. (laughs) Uh, And there are people who are relationship experts. And the guy who I recommend most is this guy, John Gottman. So he has run the Love Lab at the University of Washington for 40 years. And he has an immense data set and lots of just wisdom about how this stuff works. So yes, that said, from what I've observed and from my own experiences, if you have a clash in values, eventually things are going to not work. And you're probably going to share 100% of each other's values and you don't want to either. You don't want to be in a relationship with a clone of yourself. That's not going to be fun. A lot of growth happens because people stimulate each other and challenge each other. At the same time, you're going to have deal breakers and you want those deal breakers to be aligned. So for example, if one of your values is you know, I do not do drugs. And if that person's like, yeah, we're into, you know, my mind is a playground, I'm going to try everything. That's eh, it's going to be a problem, right? Right. Uh, so if one of your values is, is, say, super-duper stability and that person's value is adventure and craziness, like, oh, this is not going to work out. So, you know, just make sure that the core stuff is aligned. And then, so that's the need to have. And then the nice-to-have is, you can kind of compromise on. And people also change and they mold each other. So if you don't believe in alcoholism and the other person does, well, you shouldn't change because you know that's actually pretty healthy to be not into that. But if that person likes to go rock climbing, says, hey, you want to try this and you kind of you know, prefer to do things that are l- less risky seeming, hey, you may gain something by trying this out every once in a while. So I think it's really important to be willing to step into the world of your partner just a little bit at the very least, if not whole hog. So, you know, I know this one couple and one of them is like the super athlete, just, you know, uh, ultra marathon runner, rock climber, everything. And the female partner, you know, nice person, sufficiently athletic, but you know, just like average. And she got into rock climbing. So they went rock climbing together. I know another couple where the guy was super duper into, into football, American football, and the wife was just really not into it. Like, I would imagine most, most wives, but she's like, you know, he's into it. So I'm going to try it out and see what it's like. And now she's like a rabid fan. So now there's something they can, they can do together.
1: Amazing Mm -hmm. for me. Like I I do have a kind of a personal experience in this field. You were, you are just describing how it can be very healthy to every now and then realize that the, from the other person's perspective in a relationship and a friendship and any kind of human relationship, you are, a part of his story you are a part of his own narrative as the main character of their story and for me it's definitely been a very healthy exercise, especially in, in relationships where I can see many of my own terrible habits, like uh, like uh, being uh, sometimes unorganized and messy and, and uh, having uh, many sources of inspiration, which also means, like, for example, having many instruments at the house which are constantly in playing mode, which is not always <laughs> the same as being in the most visual or providing for the most visually and aesthetically pleasing environment when you're talking about, for for example percussion instruments all around the house what are some of the habits that people that you've seen have applied you know like stemming from the realizations that we t- just talked about because i do think personally that the habits that kind of check my bullshit in this area of life and and help me help me see things in everyday life from other people's perspective have been vastly vastly helpful for me and this is something that i i would love to explore more so what are, you know, like, do you have any experiences on that?
0: Yeah, so some good habits for a maintenance relationship and keeping things growing and also good communication. One of them is the questioning habit. So the questioning habit is in contradiction to the criticism habit. So criticism is one of the five horses. So there's the four horses of, of the apocalypse and and there's the, there's the five horses of, of relationship destruction as described by John Gottman. And they are... Criticism, contempt, stonewalling, and two more, which I forget. But anyway, it's one of the five. And instead of criticism, you could be in a spirit of inquiry. So, for example, let's say, you know, you were supposed to be taking out the trash on Tuesdays and you didn't do it on Tuesday, right? So I could say, you didn't take the trash again. You know, stop being such a slob or something. Or you could say, hey, I know it's a trash wasn't taken out, was there a particular reason why you didn't get around to it, right? So it accomplishes the same thing, which is gets the guy to think it's like, oh, wait, maybe I should have done that. But the first one is accusatory. By the way, you can also ask a question, which is basically not a question. It's like you could say, what kind of idiot wouldn't take out the trash? (laughs) That's not really the kind of question we're looking for. So, So the question has to be in the spirit of true inquiry as to understand, hey, what happened here? Because your partner is not out to make you miserable. Your partner is just, being his or her own self. And everybody's got imperfections and there are rough edges to be smoothed down. So you ask, hey, what is up with this? Help me understand, right? So so the, the mode is help me understand this. Help me understand why I didn't take out the trash. Or what was it that kept you from taking out the trash or something like that, right? So, and then you actually get to know the person better. And they usually get the message that, oh, I was supposed to take out the trash. So, and also there are going to be disagreements that are going to be fights in any relationship and John Gottman talks about the whole idea of harsh startup versus soft startup. So Mm. if you're gonna have a disagreement, instead of saying, what kind of it so you say, Hey, I noticed this happened, right? And you also start from the way you feel. You can say, you know, when you don't take out the trash, I feel like I'm not listened to, or I feel, you know, like I have a lot of the burden of doing the housework or something like that. So the questioning habit, and that works with friendships, works with all kinds of relationships. If you're a boss, you ask your employees, uh, as opposed to saying, you didn't do the report, fool. You say, well, you know, I was wondering why you didn't get around to turning the report in on time. And then the employee is like, oh, okay. And you create an atmosphere of safety, which is important in all kinds of relationships so people can feel to express themselves. And so people don't, just fall into the sympathetic nervous system where they get adrenaline and cortisol and then they kind of go into fight, flight, freeze. And that's not conducive to having robust relationships. When you do that, you want to keep people open. You want to keep people in the parasympathetic mode so you actually have channels of communication. And in order to do that, you want to make people feel safe.
1: So the relationships as one of the core building blocks or even as the building block of a happy life it seems very contradictory that especially A players, people with a high pain threshold, people with very high expectations of of their own so-called success end up sacrificing so much of their relationships with their partners, with their kids, and they're not getting that time back. And it's something that they end up regretting. What's going on there? Like, what makes it so hard for us to accept that we can't be optimizing our so-called success unless we're also taken into account our relationships. I'm I'm
0: glad you mentioned that because the top line advice for this relationship section is make relationships a priority such that career supports relationships, not the other way around. So the way it works in the United States, as far as I can tell, is that uh, the relationships are there to support the career, right? And so you, what you want to be doing is you want to have like this bowl, right? The bowl is the career and it's holding the relationship because if you turn the bowl over, it all spills down. It doesn't really work. So <laughs> there's really my metaphor. So I could speculate as to why that happens, but, you know, people just get in these loops. They get stuck in these compulsive loops. And also the whole status, money, power thing is very compelling. And it feeds into those same addictive circuitry and... You know, imagine that there's war, right? And there's a neighboring country or tribe coming to invade. We're talking life and death. So all that other stuff has to be put by the wayside so you can focus on the war. And I think a lot a lot of times what happens is people get in these situations where they have businesses to run and and that same kind of circuitry turns on and it's like all this other stuff gets forgotten. But there is no war. Okay. It's all in your head. So and also I, I've seen people who are successful. they've made their first 10 million. now they want the first hundred million now then they want the first the next billion. And you know once you've got 10 million to your name, basically all your needs are pretty much taken care of for life. You just put that somewhere in the bank and even one percent interest, that's a hundred thousand a year. You can live pretty well for the rest of your life, okay so and yet they're like, no more and more and more. So you have to recognize that there's this thing called the hedonic treadmill and the hedonic treadmill, is what is making a lot of people miserable. Because, you know, and it's not really anybody's fault. It's just an essential feature of mammalian neurology. So what happens is that we're in this room right now, and it's super bright. We're getting outside light and also light from the top. Now, if you put me in a dark room, I can't see anything, right? Right. Because what your senses do is they adapt to the current level of stimulus so they can detect change. What you want to detect is that tiger rustling in the grass, tall grasses over there. So you can notice that and run away, right? Right. So what you want to do is you want to habituate to what's happening here. So your brain is sensitive to that change, that rustling. And you can't constantly be vigilant about just the tall grass standing there because then stuff stops working. So and this works for your retina. It works for your ears. It works for your, for your sense of touch. I mean, right now you and I have been sitting on this chair, but that's not an essential stimulus, so you don't feel your butt. You don't feel the fact that you're sitting here, but now that I brought it to your attention, now you feel it. So habituation is an essential part of mammalian neurology, and it's helped us humans and mammals do so well. At the same time, it is a thing that keeps you wanting more. So if I give you a banana and you eat it, right, then that's pretty sweet. And like, that was awesome, right? If I give you a piece of chocolate or cheesecake and you eat that, oh, wow, so sweet. That's really great if I give you the banana again, you can't taste it. It tastes like cardboard because your tongue, your taste buds, your olfactory and gustatory sense have now adapted to this much more intense stimulus. So bananas are simply not going to be interesting, right? So once you get your first car, a beautiful brand new Toyota Prius, this is awesome, right? Then you're like, Oh, Mercedes, this is awesome. Then you get, then you get a Lotus or you get a McLaren. This is awesome, right? And it's like, where do you go from a McLaren? Right? So you can get a boat, you get a yacht. So, if you get into that zone, there's always going to be a bigger yacht that you want, right? And and you get into the where's my super yacht syndrome, which is not the way to be happy, right? Uh, and Diminishing returns right there. Exactly, because you didn't need the yacht to begin with and you definitely don't need a super yacht. So the key thing is to be mindful of this hedonic treadmill and, you know, you get the promotion, you want the next promotion, you want the next raise. There's no end to it, right? Bigger house, bigger everything. And you have to recognize from the outset that bigger and better do not make you happier. So being grateful for what you have is what makes you happy and recognizing that your needs are met. That is what makes you happy and attending to your relationships. That's what makes you happy. So these are the forces that take you away. It's like opportunity cost. Instead of attending to your relationships, you are attending to this other stuff, status, money, power, hedonic treadmill stuff. And that gets people off track. And It takes a lot of mental presence. It takes a lot of mental training to deliberately step off that hedonic treadmill because we're just built for it, right?
1: Right. And we're trying to apply methods like mindfulness and meditation to kind of distance ourselves from that hedonic treadmill. When you're looking at the uh, entirety of the happiness engineering equation, say we are prioritizing our relationships. What next? What comes next? How can we how can we uh, move one step further? Of course, yeah. nailing that apparently in the in the study that you just started the story with is essential and already makes up for many shortcomings in the other areas. Yeah. But what's next after yeah, our so, relationships?
0: So the, I'll give the five areas, and then we can talk about each sure. one a little bit. So so the five areas: first one is relationships. Second one is life purpose. So basically, what are you doing twelve hours a day? Third one is sleep fourth one is mental fitness and fifth one is physical fitness. So life purpose is pretty big because it's what people spend most of their days doing, working, right? So what is it that you're doing and does it involve meaning? Does it involve service? Because if it does not, then you are putting an absolute limit to how happy you can be. If it does, then man, the sky's the limit because turns out that we are hypersocial beings and the more your work involves service, actually helping other people out, the happier you're going to be. And the more it involves meeting. So I like to tell the story of the, of the three bricklayers. So the guy comes up to three bricklayers and asks the first one, hey, what are you doing? He's like, hey, what does it look like I'm doing? Laying bricks. He's like, all right, cool. Second guy, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm building a church. It's like, all right, cool. Third guy, what are you doing? He's like, oh. I'm building a house of worship that will outlast me and serve as a place for people to commune with their higher selves for decades and centuries to come. Same job, three different ways of looking at it. So the first guy had a job, second guy had a career, third guy had a calling. So are you engaged in a job, career, or calling? And it turns out that about 80% of Americans are totally not happy with what they're doing. And they have these jobs, pays them. So they can go in over the weekend and do the thing that they wanted to be doing, right? And that, to me, seems like a really terrible trade-off. Like eighty percent not stuff you want to be doing, twenty percent stuff you want to be doing. And here's a very simple rubric for the kind of job that you have, whether it's actually fulfilling or not. So, if you 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 are either fulfilling, you're working to fulfill your dreams, or you're working to fulfill somebody else's dreams. Right. If you're working to fulfill your dreams, that's a calling. If you're working to fill somebody else's dreams, I don't care how cool your company is. It could be Google. It could be Tesla. You know, even if you're at Google making bank, you're fulfilling the dreams of Sergey and Larry, not yours. Okay, so that's a job. And we want you to get you out of job and more into the zone of career and calling. And I understand that most people don't have the luxury of quitting their job right now and becoming an entrepreneur and doing what they've always wanted to do. However... You can do some job crafting. There's this lady uh, at I think Yale Business School, her name is Amy Reznievsky. Uh, starts with a W, W-R-E-Z. Anyway. Amy Reznievsky and we'll she, put that about the show notes. Exactly. So and she talks about job crafting, which is that within your job, you define it such that it's more meaningful to you. So it's like that guy who said, I'm building a house of worship that's gonna last for centuries and help people commune, you know, uh, with their higher selves. So you could do that. You could mentor somebody in your company because the mentoring is an active service. You can also add 10 hours a month of public service. So 10 hours a month is the sweet spot. Less than that, you're not getting the maximal dose. Beyond that, you start to get into the burnout zone, but 10 hours a month of public service can totally change the way you see your world and see your see your job and look, I totally dig. You've got you've got a wife and kids and you know, 2.3 offspring and private school to pay and bills, you can't just quit, especially if you have a pretty good job. However, you can do the job crafting, you can add the service, and you can also orient yourself towards a five-year plan of becoming more independent and maybe become an entrepreneur and maybe doing something that is more meaningful to you, doing the thing that uh, fulfills you. And I mean, look, let's face it. You don't get a second shot at this. One life, okay? So it's like, oh, you spend 30 years doing somebody else's stuff. How are you going to feel at the end of that 30 years? So I want to make sure that you are doing this consciously right now. So think about it. Consider what else you could be doing. Maybe even you know take some time off to really consider what are the options. Because if you, if you set it up now, any one of you in three years, you could be doing something much more meaningful. If you want to
1: so does it also hold that a people who initially feel that they're not uh, living to their fullest potential, they're not bringing out their gift and they are still kind of lost in what their gift might be it might be a good idea to engage in in the service element just you know like find some way to serve your community, the people around you, yeah. and, and figure out as you go. Or yeah. What are some of the suggestions? Because that's something that that many people seem to struggle with. People seem to struggle in being able to define and find the gift that they should be given to the world.
0: Yeah. Well, for each person, it's going to be different. And there are websites. I, Off the top of my head, I don't remember, but you know, something.org, you go there, and it's like servenow.org, something like that. You go there, and there's a whole list of stuff that does it by city, by neighborhood. You can go and engage yourself in some kind of public service. But it comes back to your values, like what really matters to you. So for me, one of my top line values is education. So, you know, if I'm going to do something in the service realm, it's going to be around education and, you know, something like reading to kids. It's a really good charity that's out there all over the U.S., for example. You go and you do that. Or maybe you go and you teach people who have just gone to prison how to, uh, do their job search and rehabilitate themselves. There's all kinds of opportunities out there. Uh, you like pets? Go work with the pets. But go and drill down to your core values and and be totally selfish about it. Make it fun. You're not doing the service things like, oh, well, you know, Dr. Jelly said service is a good thing. It'll make me happy. I'll do this. It's not supposed to be like, you know, going to spin class, which actually some people enjoy. Bad example. <laughs> bad example. It's not supposed to hurt. It's supposed to be fun, right? And by the way, this whole happiness thing, I just want to make sure that people understand. Making yourself happy is the most altruistic thing you could be doing because we are all hyperconnected beings and we all exist in these networks of people, right? So you're a node in this network, and you only that node only exists because there's other people connecting to it. There's other vertices. You take away the vertices, you take away connections, that dot stops to exist, right? So we exist embedded in these networks of interconnected humans. And so when you become happier, when you become healthier, when you become a more flourishing human being, you set an example, and this reverberates throughout the network. And you think I'm just making this stuff up. I am not. There's actual science behind this. So Nick Christakis, formerly of Harvard University, and his colleagues, they did all these studies which showed that if you are overweight, it makes it... 35% more likely that your friend is overweight. And then the friend of a friend is like 15% more likely, Mm. right? If you quit smoking, same thing, like 40% less likely to smoke. Network effect. Network effect. It's astonishing. We are like super connected. And they had the data from the whole Framingham cohort, which is like tens of thousands of people studied over the past like 30, 40 years. And they visualize it. It's almost like a wave. Like like you can see like the quit smoking wave start just just spreads out. So – If you think that you spending all your time and energy trying to become happy is a selfish thing, no, it's not. It's the thing that actually changes the world. You know, a certain Mr. Gandhi man said, be the change you want to see in the world, and this is where it starts. And, you know, people say, oh, I'm going to go change the world. You are part of the world. Start here. This is the most effective place to start, and it's the thing you have the most control over. You can try to, like, I don't know, go clean up nuclear waste sites, but right here, much easier, simpler, no lead outfit required.
1: Like start with your own stuff. Start with your own crap. Exactly. You already know what it is. <laughs> Most of us do at least. Mm. I mean, it's and so it's so easy to to go out and kind of criticize other people's mistakes and shortcomings, but instead, if you look at it from that network perspective, yeah. you should be you or, should be starting or
0: go to yeah. like, oh, I'm going to go and help AIDS orphans in Uganda. Dude, right here. Right here. Start in your neighborhood. You that's the first thing you work with, right? And then you become a more effective instrument for service and, and and flourishing. Then you can go help other people, maybe. But, you know, start here. Otherwise, you're just transmitting your own neuroses to the rest of the world.
1: That's so important. And also a, a painful lesson for most of us, which makes it all the more healthy. What else? We've looked at the the side of being able to craft your job and, and craft a more meaningful path of giving your gift, uh, f- starting from
0: the job to the career to the calling, What else? Number three is sleep. And I'm here to tell you that sleep is not optional. Now, this may seem really, really obvious, but you'd be shocked and amazed at how many people treat sleep like it's some kind of unlimited bank account that you just keep on making withdrawals from it's like oh yeah, yeah whatever i'll sleep when i'm dead <laughs> no if you don't sleep you will be dead a hell of a lot sooner than you think so sleep is not optional and every time you lose a little bit of sleep it ain't coming back man you cannot make up for it and people think oh you know i'll just sleep over the weekend so let me do the math for you so let's say you short sleep for the entire week six hours a night which six hours doesn't seem so bad but it's actually two hours less than you should be sleeping so That's 5 times 2. That's 10 hours, right? So now you have to make up 10 hours. That means if you normally wake up at 8, you have to wake up at 1 p.m. on Saturday and Sunday, both days. How many times have you done that in your life? I'm going to hazard a guess and say never, right? And on top of that, what time are you going to go to bed on Saturday and Sunday? Probably not earlier than the other days of the week, right? You're probably going to go out, live it up, have something to drink. So your sleep just got shot. And short sleeping four nights in a row is enough to mess up your metabolism such that you are now basically pre-diabetic wow yeah and sleep affects your learning and memory your cognitive ability obviously your metabolism mood so it affects every system digestion if you are not sleeping well you are basically guaranteeing yourself misery you could have all the other five things lined up but if you're not four things lined up if you're not sleeping then you will be one miserable fuck sleep often
1: neglected. I think one of the, one of the key things about sleep for me personally has been to become very aware of the daily habits that affect this quality of my sleep, starting from, uh, having coffee after, uh, after 12 or, or even, you know, like even just, you know, like having a cup of coffee at any time of the day seems to have an effect on my resting heart rate during the night. That's one, one aspect also exercising too late in the evening I've been tracking I've been using several devices to track
0: my own sleep and yeah.
1: and becoming aware of that stuff is super powerful. Yeah, that's, absolutely that's
0: powerful. Yeah, most people have no idea about the quality or quantity of their own sleep, mostly because while well, it's happening, you're unconscious. So it's hard to monitor. But you know that's one thing I appreciate about this whole biohacker community, which is they have these, you know, aura rings, they have these wristbands. So they're doing something to become more aware of what's happening. And And that is, that's the number one thing you want to start doing is you want to actually become more aware of the quality and quality of your sleep. If you don't know where you are, how do you change it? So, but first I want to talk about the top line sleep hygiene recommendations. So you mentioned the caffeine thing. So it's super important not to drink any caffeine after like 3 or 4 p.m. People don't realize that caffeine has a half-life of six hours, which means that if you have around 95 milligrams of caffeine at 4 p.m., which is about the amount of caffeine is in an average cup of coffee. That means at 10 p.m., you still have around 50 milligrams running through your circulation, and that is enough to make you not sleep well, okay? So you need to stop ingesting caffeine basically by 3 p.m., if not earlier, okay? So that's a big thing. Alcohol, similarly. So A lot of people, they go out and they drink and then they come home, they expect to sleep. And he's like, oh, well, alcohol made me sleep even better because I was relaxed. Uh, That's not how it works. It actually affects the quality of your sleep. So you don't get into like the super restorative slow wave sleep when you drink alcohol. So that is going to impair the quality of your sleep. So no alcohol at least two hours before you go to bed. And uh Another thing is really strict sleep and wake times. So it's really important to go to bed at the same time and wake up at the same time, ideally even over weekends. So, because that's how your body entrains. That's how your body becomes used to the idea of, okay, now circadian rhythm, shut things down, and then wake up at a certain time. So I understand that some of us like to have fun. Hi. Uh, And (laughs) I, you know, I like to go out on weekends. You come back home, next thing you know, it's like one, two, three, four, and... So I dig it's totally cool happens every once in a while but still try to wake up at the same time you were before unless you're really not getting that much sleep in which case take naps make up for it somehow. So it's important just to make it sustainable. If you do that all the time you're stressing your body in crazy ways. Now the thing that is really going to mess up your sleep is time zone changes and there's basically no way to overcome that. I mean you 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 adjust about an hour a day because your circadian rhythm, circa dia means approximately a day, about a day. Mm. It's not exactly a day. So your bodily rhythm is actually 25 hours every 24 hour period. So that's how your body can actually adjust an hour a day to a new time zone. So if you have a job that requires that you have this crazy sleep schedule, you know, going from Malaysia to Hong Kong to New York to Europe and stuff like that you are really compromising your health. I mean, just like in severe ways you can't even imagine. So my top line recommendation for that is don't do it. Just don't accept those assignments. Don't do it. If you go from New York to Helsinki, New York to I know Berlin, it takes you a week to adjust to that, especially going uh, from west to east that's much harder. So just be absolutely vigilant, fanatical about your sleep. You don't want to be looking at devices right before you go to bed so more than an hour just no don't look at them at all exception to the rule if you do have blue blocking glasses that might be okay so you have these yellow glasses i do have a pair you can buy them online for 10 bucks off of amazon i have a uvex pair and that helps because what happens is the blue light messes up your melatonin levels so and then you basically don't have the amount of sleep drive that you need to, to actually fall asleep when you normally would. So don't be looking at screens. Don't be watching TV. If you are, get one of those yellow glasses to do that. And also keep the room cooler than you would normally. So 68 degrees or about 19 degrees uh, centigrade. Uh, that's the recommendation, or maybe even less. You can go down to 60 even. And you want to keep the room cool and super dark. So have blackout curtains. I Swear by my uh, eye mask, so I always sleep with eye mask. I always travel with it because you know some places of the world they don't have curtains, or some hotels have these really wimpy curtains. So make sure you have the eye mask. So all these things to ensure good sleep. But the most important thing I want to talk about when it comes to sleep is obstructive sleep apnea. So do you know about obstructive sleep apnea? I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So obstructive sleep apnea is the biggest chronic disease in the U.S., if not the world and the most underdiagnosed. So 24% of all men and 9% of all women have it. And kids as young as eight can have it. Because what happens is that when you lie down, your airway kind of wants to flop down and collapse. And on top of that, you're taking these breaths. So because of the Bernoulli effect, you get this low pressure zone and then your airway collapses, right? Because you have some parts of it that are rigid, but some parts are squishy. And if you do have a lot of soft tissue around there, if you're a little overweight, it makes it even more so, just wants to collapse. So what happens is that you've heard that sound before yeah the sound of your partner sleeping or maybe you and what happens is your airway gets completely blocked and you're lying down right and eventually body's gonna need some air so what happens is you have a breakthrough breath which sounds something like this okay sounds horrifying but that's how you don't die when you sleep you have the breakthrough breath and you get some breath in until the next time when you know the breakthrough breath so When you have that breakthrough breath, you get a micro wake-up. Your whole body basically wakes up, right? So you never go into that deep sleep zone. You never go into that slow wave deep sleep. Also, it messes up your REM sleep. It just messes everything up. So what can happen is what happened to me, yours truly, here for about 20-something years. I had sleep apnea for a really long time. I didn't know it. All I knew was that since I was a kid, I couldn't get out of bed. I was like, oh, God, I want to go to school. And I just thought I was a lazy bum. I just thought that's whatever, right? It turns out I've had sleep apnea my entire life. Wow. And so what happens is And you were how old when you found out? Uh over 40. So <laughs> Yeah. So we're talking a long time. So you go and if you are not breathing when you sleep, then you wake up and you've you've never gotten restorative sleep. You just you're not recharged, you're not on top of it. Your cognition suffers, everything suffers. So I finally went and got a study. And I found out that I was waking up 230 times a night.
1: 230 times?
0: Yes. During that one night? Yes. That's insane. Exactly.
1: So essentially, you're not getting any deep sleep. Your no. REM sleep no. is getting no. you know, well, like screwed well, up?
0: Well, no. Yeah, so, so there's surgery. There's other things. I do not recommend surgery because surgery you know, sometimes doesn't work, and that's terrible. So. But there are physical fixes, and the most effective one is this. you get this machine called a continuous positive airway pressure machine, CPAP. And the CPAP machine is basically a mask that forces slightly pressurized air into your into your airway. It's basically like a splint that's made of air. It just, whoop, mm. it just keeps the airway open. And that way the airway does not collapse. And so you can breathe throughout the night. And all I have to do is not put that on one night. And the next morning I'm like, oh, God. You know, you got to bring in the crane because otherwise I can't, <laughs> I can't get out of bed. So, and... Look, guys, this is super important, okay? I was driving, like, you know, 120 kilometers, 60 miles, 60, 70 miles an hour on the road, broad daylight, 2 p.m., sun is in, the Southern California sun is in my face, and I was falling asleep. I had, like, irresistible sleep pressure, and I was, like, going like this, almost hit the barrier. I'm like, okay, this is not cool, right? You can die. I mean, 80,000 people a year in the U.S. die like this. That's not cool, right? So you want to go get tested. So you want to go get a sleep study. And right now, they're really simple. It used to be complicated. You had to go into a lab, you had to get wired up, you had to stay there overnight. Now they just put a little gizmo on you. It's a wrist actimeter. And you wear it, you take it back, they download the data, they show you what happened, boom, you got your diagnosis, you know what to do. And if you're in a place like Finland, obviously, it's going to be free, uh, or England. In the US, it's usually covered by your health insurance. Uh, If not it's not that expensive. It's like $300. $300 for not dying and also becoming a much more productive, happy version of you. Good investment.
1: Exactly. And not to mention the other people that you're putting in risk, putting at risk when yeah. you're when you're driving and and you have that sleep per- pressure setting on. I had a couple of friends fell asleep behind the wheel luckily nothing happened, but that was a wake-up call for them to get the studies Literally, done. Literally wake-up call. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that, that was a literal wake-up call, man. And if anything good came out of it was that they did get the sleep studies done and they did take the measures uh, that were prescribed and are now living, living life. One of them described it to me as if they had, you know, like been sleeping for 10 years every day, you know, like going, seeing and experiencing life through a veil of sleepiness and then getting all of that back. Like, amazing you know, the
0: dollars man like amazing. amazing amazing i mean like what's it like to pick up a book and not fall asleep immediately you know it's crazy but the people who have sleep apnea that's what happens like instantly they fall asleep right if you are falling asleep if you have like huge sleep pressure daytime drowsiness you probably have sleep apnea. And if your partner tells you that you snore, you probably have sleep apnea.
1: Yeah, especially the guys out there who might be resisting, resisting the idea. If you feel super sleepy every morning, go get tested. You will, you will definitely thank yourself for, yeah, for, this is, for figuring this yeah, out. Yeah, this is
0: huge. I will be harping on this to, to the end of my days. So, um, yeah.
1: Yeah. So get that sleep thing figured out. What's next?
0: So sleep, super key. And then we go to, oh, yes, mental fitness. So the book was it was originally going to be just about this. So Really? The whole idea of training your brain. But right? it just expanded into... Well, there's a lot of books about it. And also, people get annoyed when you tell them to meditate. So I had to annoy... <laughs> I had to... I had to they annoy, do. Had to annoy do. them about other things, so it's just one of the many things. But also, look, I'm calling it mental fitness because that's like a really simple way of looking at it. So meditation, you're like, oh, I'm just not meditative. I'm not into it. Okay, how about this? So would you rather be fit or flabby? Most people would say... Fit. All right, fit. No problem, right? Easy, no brainer. So, and how do you become fit? You exercise, Exercise gets you fit. People can dig that. And there are advantages to fitness over being out of shape that are undeniable. So we're on board with that. Now, the question is, would you rather be mentally fit or flabby? And most people would say fit, right? Absolutely. Right. And the question is, what do you do to be mentally fit? Hmm. Good question. I'm not quite sure, right? Is it playing Sudoku? Is it, you know, watching certain TV shows? I have no idea. So, what I propose is that for mental fitness, meditation is the analog of exercise, right? So it's the thing you do to make your mind fit. And that said, that means there's no way around it. It's not optional. If you are serious about happiness, you got to have a fit mind. And there are three aspects of this fitness. So one is the ability to focus, And we already mentioned one key skill of adulthood. The other one is the ability to focus because that's how you get shit done. If you are not getting shit done, you are not delivering, you're not producing, you're not a productive member of society. Okay, so you have to be able to focus. And I say this as if it's a trivial thing. It's not. The ability to focus is under siege. Apparently now the average human attention span is eight seconds, which is one second less than that of a goldfish, right? So (laughs) goldfish, nine seconds. Human, eight Holy crap. Yeah, so... uh, What have we done to ourselves? (laughs) We are in a crisis of attention, so being able to focus is huge. So the second level skill is the ability to perceive, right? And you want to be able to feel things. You want to notice things happening in your environment. And this used to be the top level skill because you got that tiger, you know, rustling in the tall grasses there. You want to be able to spot that. That's how you survive, right? But in a safer environment that we live now... Maybe it's number two. And number three is compassion. You wanna be able to feel. You wanna be able to actually connect with people. So, those three skills are three skills that can be trained through meditation. And I basically kind of say, okay, level one is the focus, level two is the perception, and level three is the compassion. So, if you really wanna get advanced, you do the two and the three. But number one is not optional, and you wanna learn how to focus, and you do that through. Uh, learning a couple of meditation techniques and just doing them. It's the thing that makes your mind fit. And the investment is so tiny as to be almost trivial. So if you have 16 waking hours in a day, that's 960 minutes. It's called 1,000, right? So 20 minutes, 20 minutes a day, that's 2%. 2% 2 of 1,000 is 20 minutes, okay? So 2% of your day spent meditating, not so bad, right? You can do this. Because you were spending a hell of a lot more than two percent, you know, noodling on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, just wasting time, right? Picking your nails, picking your nose, whatever it is. Twenty minutes spent meditating, the returns are huge. I mean, this is called the Superman podcast, right? Uh, the superhero podcast. The yeah. Super superhero podcast. So there is no faster way of developing superhero powers than meditating. I mean, I'm I'm not kidding, man. You meditate, you know, I've been doing it for 10, 15 years now, and I notice things now. That I'm able to do that were simply beyond my imagining, beyond my ken, 10, 15 years ago.
1: I always love uh, to talk to guests about how they started meditating, because every story is different. Many people have faced the same resistances and faced the same hurdles. What is the common denominator, however, is that most people do have some kind of a mindfulness meditation practice in place, in order to keep them sane in whatever they're doing, whether it be uh, Zombardique, who is absolutely exploding through the charts in the Global Iron Man Challenge, or uh, whether it's the people who are pushing the boundaries of, of medicine, of science, whatever creative pursuit they're on, they, they have some way of tapping into their inner self, uh, dimming out all that noise, quieting the monkey mind. So, what's your story? You've been meditating here for 15 years. How did you yeah, 15, start?
0: 15, 20, depending on where you put the starting point. But the point is, I got started, and now it's a habit. And now it's there, and it's the most important thing I do every day. And the way it started was that I really wasn't into it. I mean, I'm kind of a spaz. I, you know, I'm interested. Oh, squirrel! Okay, I'm. You know, I I noticed a lot of things. Easily distracted, and the whole notion of like sitting down and doing nothing just, just no, really not my thing. Sorry, I'd rather be doing something. Right, and. What happened was that uh, I started getting into uh, Taoism. There was this book. uh, I used to work in bookstores. And then at the UCSD Medical School bookstore, there was this book I kept on bumping into. It's called The Tao of Poo. What what is this all about, right? (laughs) And uh, so I finally picked up a read. I'm like, oh, wow, that's really interesting, right? So I got deep into Eastern philosophy, and they kept on mentioning meditation to my irritation. I'm like, ah, whatever. But what happened was, when I was living in Boston, I just joined this new gym and I started doing my stupid weightlifting routines and I was doing something particularly stupid with a lot of weight. I threw my back out. So now, I, you know, it's so bad I can't even sit. I'm in pain. I finally go and I get a massage. And the, and the massage lady was actually a yoga teacher too. So afterwards, she wrote a prescription out and she said, do yoga. I'm like, really, really? You want, you want me to go from like doing like, 350 pound deadlifts doing yoga but okay fine so and it turns out that my gym had a yoga class free yoga class so i went to that 45 minutes not so bad and then i went into the the bigger yoga class down the road baptiste power yoga in boston hey baron how you doing and that's where it all started and when i started doing that the class was so intense i remember that first class was the second hardest thing i'd done physically the first being a triathlon that ended on top of a mountain. So not going down, you top. And so this was the second toughest thing I've ever done because it was like, it was a hot room. It was one and a half hours. It was really fast. Nothing wimpy about it, right? And by the end of it, you were so tired that when they drop you in the final pose, you just really, really let go. The final pose is called Shavasana. It's the corpse pose. And it's my power pose. I'm really good at it. It involves doing nothing. So there I am lying down. I'm like, oh, this feels pretty good. And you're so exhausted that your mind just, it's blank, right? Right. So after several months of this, I'm like, this must be what meditation feels like. This isn't so bad, right? And Did, so, did you at that point connect it to what was described in, in the book? Exactly, did, yeah. 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 So, so I thought, hey, why don't I do this independently? So it actually took me a move to Los Angeles to get started. And then I started doing uh, this hung saw technique, which I described in my books, which we can do a short version of here if you want but that's how i got started and just kind of you know 5 minutes 10 minutes 15 20 so now i've got my 20 minutes and i'd like to increase it because this is a it's a dose dependent thing you do more of it it has more in effect you become a just calmer more chill less perturbable just more joyous human being shit just doesn't bug you as much that's the most <laughs> important part
1: i will definitely second that and for me like getting into meditation as I've shared with the audience, one of the things that was especially hard for me was the fact that I did not have a habit of sitting down without doing nothing. Like I'm the type of person for whom social interaction is very rejuvenating and energizing, but I did start to notice very early on when I when I found the ways of calming my mind that I got so much more into the moment. I got so much more focus. I had more energy. I had more compassion towards people. It was amazing. And what really helped me was starting to incorporate these moments of meditation with first with apps and afterwards with other techniques that I explored. And uh, one thing that really helped me was doing the meditation after a cold shower. Mm, something Something I also love to have as part of my morning routine because as a as a person with with a mind that very easily gets addicted to thinking, I feel like the cold shower in the morning, I typically do a hundred seconds, around two minutes of the coldest shower I can get. I just put the tap on cold and turn the water all sure. the way to the max. And at first, it does feel like something you you might think is 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 very uncomfortable, but afterwards, you start, to get these feelings of, of relaxation, of, of being at the moment. Huh. Uh, it's, awesome. it's, it's pretty crazy. And, and for me, doing the shower first and then doing the meditation, that was the trick for me. That okay. was that was certainly, I would say, I would attribute to uh, a lot of the success I had in building this habit to finding that combination. And I've heard that many people who have very fast racing minds and who are, who are typically very uh, easily addicted to all types of novelty and different types of, of uh, uh, things happening all around them, and they do enjoy those environments, I definitely fall into the category. And for me, that has been a hack
0: that I've managed to employ. That's fantastic. Well, okay, I will, I will try the cold water thing at least once. I did do the nitrogen... Uh, the cryobath thing. That was that was intense. So.
1: so what we're talking about here with with uh Dr. Ali is the nitrogen cryo bath that we had at the Biohacker Conference. Yeah. At the BioHacker Summit. Essentially it's a device that showers you with nitrogen. You essentially go there wearing a, wearing a bathing suit or nothing at all, and you get blasted or well not necessarily blasted, but it it applies uh, some liquid nitrogen into the space that you're standing in, and it's the temperature is around like minus. 120 degrees Celsius, around something like that. How, how did you feel during and afterwards?
0: Mm, frigid. Frigid? <laughs> it was cold. It was not, I can you know, lie, it wasn't comfortable. And you're like, ah, I think my nipples are going to fall off. So it, it's super duper cold. But afterwards, you get this like surge of energies. I don't know what it is, but you're just like <laughs> super alert. And I can see how people can want to do that again and again. So Apparently Tony Robbins has one of these gizmos in his home. So and a lot of athletes swear by it, you know, has anti-inflammatory properties. I can I can see how it can how it can work. Um, much more into simpler more conventional things and hey, if I can do a cold shower, that's much easier than liquid nitrogen bath.
1: Actually, when I'm you know like oftentimes when I'm traveling in in California and the West Coast, one thing that I do miss a lot is cold exposure. Simple as that. It's hard to find cold showers in California. Sorry, man. It's, um, <laughs> but like, it's, it's also something that, that that I really love about being in environments that really take your body out of its comfort zone because oftentimes you will find that these experiences have a way of bringing you uh, closer to yourself, more t- uh, like less attached to your thoughts, and, and more present in the moment because you are kind of shaking yourself awake. And in the mornings, that's definitely worked for me for, you know, like other people, they have managed to combine or when, when they have a painful start with meditation, they've had uh, success with uh, combining that with their morning workout, you know, like uh, working out first and doing some meditation afterwards. Do you meditate in the mornings? Do you have a morning yeah, routine?
0: So, yeah, so a few things I definitely want to convey about meditation is about, first of all, how to get to do it. And it is so important to establish a routine and just make it a habit. If you leave it to oh I'll do it when I have time oh I'll do it when I feel like it uh, ain't going to happen so what you want to do is you want to hook it into a pre-existing habit and my pre-existing habit which I do every day is shit shower and shave so in the morning you go to the bathroom you're going to come out you're going to brush your teeth you brush your teeth every day so right after you brush your teeth You sit down, you match it, and there, it's done, right? Sometimes I might vary it, I might do it after I work out or right before I work out, whatever it is. But it happens in the morning. And the crazy thing is, even though I have almost complete control over my schedule, right? I'm self employed. If I forget to do it in the morning, it doesn't get done. The remaining the remaining 16 hours in the day, I just kind of forget to do it, right? So make sure it becomes an ironclad habit and you just do it. So you don't have to do it in the morning. That's how I do it. But I feel like it's a really good way to set up the whole day, set up the whole day from a space of calm and vision and being able to feel. All these things are very useful uh, states to have. Now, the second thing, which, I, which is really important, is that if you do not meditate, then you are not serious about your own happiness. That's like that may seem like controversial statement, but I think it's totally true. And you know, there's all these there's all these uh, happiness authors out there who are like, oh, well, meditation's not really for me. Then you're basically saying, well, happiness isn't really for me. Or I just want to be like 62% happy. 100 percent is way too much, right? So you are putting an absolute limit to how happy and functional a human you can be if you do not brain train. Maybe you should just call it brain train. Exactly. Yeah, brain train. It's like, wait, you don't brain train? What's wrong with you, right? Yeah. So whereas meditate, people can go, oh, meditation, whatever, dude. That's like, that's what those long bearded yogis do up in the Himalayas or something. No, you brain train because you want your brain to be trained. So if you're not brain trained, you are not serious about happiness. And the other thing is that, you know, I hear a lot. People say, oh, I meditate, I'm too busy. I'm like, oh, if... if you don't, not meditating because you're too busy is like not exercising because you're too out of shape. Hello, <laughs> you are the poster child for this. You are the one who needs it, right? So get to it, okay? And I'm telling you, it is the most important thing you do in your day. 2%, 2%, not that hard, right? 20 minutes out of 960. So so it can be done. You can do it. So the thing is, how do you get started? So how do you get started is, so I got the... The humsaw meditation, which is incredibly simple. We can do it. How, now. how, how, do,
1: you, how do you spell that actually? It's you can do hum-sah. it.
0: H U M S A. So, humsa. If you look it up online, there's thousands of resources that describe it. And so, the humsaw meditation is really simple. So, you close your eyes. If yeah, you're driving. Do it. Let's do it. If you are driving, please do not close your eyes. If you are not driving, you may close your eyes. Close your eyes and take a deep breath. And, <clears throat> and so, first thing, you're doing three things. First is you focus on the sensation of air as it passes through your nostrils. So just feel the air as it hits your hits your nostrils. There you go. There's a certain sensation there that you're not aware of. Now you are. So focus on that. Notice that feeling. That's number one. Number two is you want to say hum on each inhalation, quietly on the inside. So hum and then on the exhalation you say saw, saw. So Inhale, hum. Exhale, saw. And there's nothing terribly special about those two syllables. Your silent syllables you say on the inside. It could be calm now. Calm now. Whatever it is. But the whole idea is you keep it the same thing and you keep on doing that. And then the third thing is you flip your eyes up and you look at the space in between your eyebrows. So you're basically looking at the back of your forehead. And that alone has a calming effect, but the combination of the three is super potent. So focus on the feeling of breath coming in through your nose, hum silently on the inhale, Mm, Saw silently on the exhale, and flip your eyes up and look at the space between your eyebrows. If you do all three of those things, you may notice it becomes impossible to have any thoughts. You can't think, no thoughts come in, it's just not possible. So whenever you are having a thought, it's because you forgot to do one of the three things. So very gently, you come back to center. You say the mantras, sa, You look up at the space between your eyebrows. And most important, pay attention to the sensation of air coming through your nostrils. And the key thing to remember is that meditation is not the practice of not having any thoughts. Meditation is the practice of dismissing thoughts. What you're doing is, you're noticing thoughts coming in you go oh thought go back to the three if you're not having thoughts that means you're brain dead and we're in more trouble than meditation can solve so thoughts are good you are having them the key thing is you don't want to follow them you don't want to go oh yeah what that person said that last night oh what does that mean oh then that reminds you of the episode of Sherlock I saw the and then no no come back to center bring it back there you go Avoid the rabbit holes of thought and, 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 there you go. How are you feeling? Even from that,
1: I'm feeling centered. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm
0: feeling that I,
1: I had a ton of questions on my mind that I wanted <laughs> to ask you. And now, now I, we now I, now do I don't that. remember. There you are. <laughs> we that. No, but it was, it was very calming. I could feel my pulse. I could feel
0: my pulse yeah. um, going out. Yeah. So that's a, that's a focus meditation that will train your brain to focus. You're doing three things and, as Sharon Salzberg, Salzburg says, meditation is the practice of dismissing thoughts. First of all, you're getting good at noticing they're coming in. Sometimes they're coming in. You don't even notice. And the next thing, you know, you're you're going down this alleyway of thought and making you unhappy. It's like, oh, so it makes you more aware of your own feelings and thoughts, which is one of the great superpowers of meditation. And then you get good at dismissing them. You just kind of gently let it go because it will go away as you come back to center. And you start out with doing that for two minutes. Anybody can sit still for two minutes, right? Then you add a minute every day. And then after a couple of weeks, you're up to 20 and you keep it there. There are also apps. There's the Calm app, which is supposed to be very good. I've never tried it. There is Headspace. I did test out Headspace. It's pretty good. It's a little ironic that in order to learn mindfulness and meditation, you have to Pick up the single most distracting device <laughs> in right. history of the, of the world, but whatever, whatever gets you started, I don't care. Get the gateway drug, get in there. So there's an Insight Timer. That's another app that works. And you mentioned an app that works for you too.
1: Oh yeah, that's the Oak app. It's a free app. That's what I love about it. It's a it's a non profit app. So money is not an issue and paying for an app yeah. to get started is no longer an excuse.
0: Yeah. The great thing about the apps is that A, it's on you all the time. And B, it's super structured. It's really easy. These people have tested it. They've had millions of users. So what they're doing really works. That's why I appreciate the work of Andy Putticom and, and Headspace. You know, that guy's a serious meditator. He was he was off in the Himalayas and he was a monk and You know, he came back down like the Bodhisattva does to educate the masses. So thanks, Andy. And uh, use his handiwork and see how it works for you.
1: Meditation. Taking care of the mind. Mind training. What's next?
0: Finally, there's, there's physical fitness, which is basically diet and exercise. And that's a challenging thing to write about because dietary recommendations are always changing. But one thing is not changing, which is that exercise is the single most reliable and efficient way of elevating your mood there's nothing in the world that will raise your mood more effectively more reliably than exercise if exercise were a pill every doctor would prescribe it heck there was even an article in the new yorker about that exactly the exercise pill they're trying to make it a pill hello (laughs) get (laughs) your ass up and move (laughs) your body is designed to move not to be sedentary so so you want to move. You want to move whenever possible. So obviously, if you can become a triathlete, great. Actually, triathlete's a little overkill. But the point is, you want to move. So integrate it into your life. Make it a priority. And and also just use simple hacks. You do not need to become an ultramarathoner to get the benefits of exercise. In fact, ultramarathoning is kind of bad for you. There's a, there is a dosage. There's a dose-response curve. And after a certain point, you start to damage yourself. So the sweet spot is 40 minutes a day. 40 minutes a day. 40 minutes a day. And... You could walk, right? You could walk. You could do, a, you could do a yoga class. You can go for a run. You can swim. There's all kinds of things you can do. The key thing is to do it. Just do it, right? That said, certain kinds of exercise are super efficient. So high-intensity interval training gets you like a disproportionate amount of benefit in a short amount of time. You know, you do that for like 10 or 20 minutes, it's almost as good as the 40 minutes, right? It's much more intense. And it just gets all the juices going. And, you know, regular exercise, regular aerobic exercise is the only thing in the world that is proven scientifically to make you smarter. So it creates neurogenesis. It promotes connecting of neurons to each other. It's crazy. So the great book that I recommend for that is called Spark, the Revolutionary New Science of Exercise in the Brain by John Rady, R-A-T-A-Y of Harvard Medical School. So great book, very motivating But the science is incontrovertible. You exercise, you will feel better. It makes you happy. And also, you know, keeps your body trim. And, you know, the the benefits are huge. So, I don't know how else to, to beat this dead horse. But yes, get exercising. And incorporate it into your life. So, I have like these rules. If it's less than 25 minutes away, I walk. If it's less than five stories, I take the stairs. So you're getting a little bit of exercise all throughout the day. Get up, stand up, use a standing desk, do walking meetings, simple stuff to just incorporate more movement into your life. Uh, dance, dancing is amazing exercise and it's social. You know, it also is, you know, adds flexibility. Yoga is a great exercise. It helps to have a cohort. It helps to have a bunch of people that you're kind of accountable to. You know, going running with a bunch of people, you're much more likely to show up. So, all these techniques, so for establishing habits, like the cohort technique, which is have a bunch of people that you're going to do this with, accountability, whether it's to one person or to yourself, or maybe even, you know, go on some site like stick.com, S D I C K K. Their tagline is put a contract on yourself, I think. And the idea is that you basically pledge a certain amount of money to a completely odious organization that you don't want to give money to like the George W Bush Presidential Library that's the most popular one so you say <laughs> if I don't exercise, you know, 5 days a week for the next month then I, you know, I forfeit these $500 to the George W Bush Library and for some reason that tends to be really motivating. So not wanting to lose actually is twice as effective as wanting to gain. So in terms of motivator and you know you want to have the habit you stick it to some schedule in your and just make it a fixed part of your day whether it's a lunchtime workout or a morning you know run or whatever it is just make it so you don't have to think about it if you have to think about it if you have to summon willpower willpower is not your friend willpower does not work you want habits you want habits are unthinking you just gonna you just do it you know for the most part in life I say don't be an automaton for this be an automaton. Establish the good habits and just do them. So all these things help just a little bit to nudge you in the direction of doing the thing you want to be doing anyway.
1: So you're on a maker schedule, creator schedule most of the time, correct? You're, you're more or less. Books, I mean, you're traveling around the world.
0: Yeah. If you don't do that, then you'll end up wasting a lot of time. And so, you know, the the first few hours of my day at least are pretty are pretty set. Afternoon can be relatively flexible. You can meet people. You can do stuff. But it's important to establish routines so you can have freedom within the routines. So I set certain hours of work. And then within those hours, I can do the things that I want to be doing. But I will be productive those three to four hours a day. And that's all you really need, by the way. So if you are actually doing four 55-minute uh, blocks of time of total concentrated work, you will be several times more productive than people who have so called eight hour workdays because most people are just faffing around, goofing off. So, four hours of internet shut off, doing your thing, no interruptions, you will move mountains. Four hour workday is all you need.
1: So, now that we've covered the five basic building blocks for happiness, what are some of the d- techniques? Because, uh, and this is something that you're, you're truly an expert on in understanding the habits and even hacking the habits sometimes, how to bypass some of the hurdles that are keeping ourselves from implementing the habits that we want. So so uh, I I would love to hear a bit about that.
0: Yeah. So uh, there's various Odysseus techniques. And so Odysseus, the whole story is that they're going by the area where the sirens live. And he's like, you know what? I really want to hear the sirens sing because it's supposed to be amazing. But I hear that if I do that, I will run aground and destroy my ship, and you know, be devoured, and that's not good. So, what he did was he told his men to lash him to the mast while they put wax in their ears so they couldn't hear the song. He said, "Just whatever I yell and scream, just ignore me, right?" So they go through the waters and the sirens sing. He's like, ah, "Let me alone, open me up," and they're like, ah, "Shut up, man." Uh, <laughs> and then they go through it safely, and he calms down. He's like, "Oh wow, that was amazing, and I didn't die, and I didn't drown my 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 ship." So. The idea is that when you know you're going to be in a zone of temptation, you create physical systems, physical barriers such that you will do the thing that you want to be doing. So that's that's one of the techniques. So when it comes to, say, eating, a very simple Odysseus technique is don't have in the house stuff you don't want to eat. Hey, amazing. So never put it in your shopping cart. So don't buy ice cream if you don't want to eat like, you know simple starches, don't buy them. If you don't want to eat candy, don't buy them. If you want to eat fruit, do buy them. So, and that's a very simple odysus technique because guess what? Stuff like ice cream is very tempting and you're hungry, your blood sugar goes low around 3.30 in the afternoon. You may want to reach for that, right? Don't do it the way you don't, but it's hard to not do it because then you have to use willpower and willpower just, you know, not your friend, not going to work. Much easier to just not have it at all. Instead, there's a carrot, you eat that. So that's one hack. One hack is to create actual physical barriers. And then there's the activation energy hack, which is that... So activation energy is one of the key principles of life and everything in the world. I mean, basically, all chemical reactions happen after an activation energy is overcome. So you know, the whole idea of a chemical reaction is that you have you start out here. This is the energy level you are, right? And for right. a spontaneous reaction to proceed, right... You are going to a lower energy level, which is down here somewhere, and and you want to get from here to here, and that seems like, hey, no problem, right? I should be able to do that, but usually that's not what happens. There's a hump. There's a hump, right? So right. the example I use is a match. So you have a match, right? And the match wants to be on fire. That's what matches do, right? That's the match destiny. But if you just hold a match, it's not going to catch fire. It needs activation energy. You need to strike it. When you strike it, you get a little bit of heat and boom, that goes over the hump and then the reaction proceeds spontaneously. Now you get fire, right? So if you want to ignite yourself, you have to overcome the activation energy. So you're lying in bed. It's nice and warm. Like, "Oh, oh God, I don't want to go to the gym. God, I want to run. It's cold out there, right? So what do you do? So there's a couple of things you can do. One is you can increase your own energy, right? So you can add energy so you overcome the hump or you can lower the hump and you lower the hump through catalysis. So I, I use a technique which I call mental catalysis, which is mental that catalysis. Mental catalysis. So basically you are in bed, you want to go running or you want to go to a gym, right? So instead of just saying there and going, eh, so first first you do the physical catalysis, which is that either you wear your running shorts to bed, right? And then you put your shoes right in front of your bed. So that extra energy required to like go to your closet and pick things up, gone. It's, you're already wearing your gym clothes, right? So that's the physical catalysis. You just lower the activation energy, right? Then the mental catalysis is you imagine yourself putting on the shoes, going out the door, running, and feeling great, looking at the sun, or maybe you're doing squats, whatever it is, but that thing that motivates you the thing that i mean once you're in the gym you don't want to leave right it's fun it's good right so just imagine yourself doing that and then crazy thing suddenly your legs are moving you just start doing it so that's the mental catalysis so a little bit of physical catalysis by setting things up so i think sean acor calls it something he calls it something else calls like the the five second rule or the four second rule or something and and countdown like making things four seconds easier yeah Really simple. So the combination of those will incline you towards doing the things that you want to do even more often. Another thing is to just schedule shit, right? Just put it on the schedule. So people are really good at showing up to totally bullshit meetings that are on their <laughs> schedule, right? It's like, oh, yeah, okay, oh, I should go to that. Oh, I should go to that. How many hundreds of those have you have you gone to, right? And how much of an effect did it have in improving your life and making you happier? So. know i'm terrible at this even though i write about this stuff right so i love classical music and there can be weeks that go by that i don't listen to classical music and the effect Mm. that it has on my brain is like instant right it's like boom suddenly i can feel all the neurons firing connections being made so schedule it in just put it in there it's like 1 p.m you will listen to something or you know you're going to go to a concert this night this night and this night just put it on the schedule whatever you exercise reading so i'm a fanatical reader read 130 two books last year and and the way I do it is just, I just have a chunk one hour a day at least one hour a day of reading so it just happens part of my morning routine so the things that you want to be doing just put them on the schedule and then they happen because then you don't have to think about it it's like oh schedule says do this amazing so th- these are some some habit hacks and you know a habit is made of three components so the book that everybody should read about habits is called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg D-U-H-I-G-G yeah, and and the structure of a habit is there's, there's a trigger, there's a routine, there's a reward. So you want to hack your own mind by creating triggers to the things that you want to be doing that ends up, you know, you, that's the routine, and then you want to reward yourself. So you want to go running. What's the trigger for running? Oh, I'm wearing shorts. Great. I'm wearing shorts. Then you get out of bed, and you do the routine. You run, then you come back, and you say, woohoo, or you give yourself a pat on the back. I will not say eat a piece of chocolate because that defeats the purpose of running. But but whatever, just like have a glass of water, something that makes you happy. But do something that immediate reward. And that way, those circuits get burned in even more.
1: Can you tell me about a a really tough habit that you had a hard time nailing down and and Mm. eventually succeeded? Because I find it easy for people to get like kind of... Kind of quite easily demoralized when they first get a good start at a habit, but don't manage to nail it down for the first thirty, for the first forty-five days that it takes to actually build it in. So, can you share a story? Yeah, the like that?
0: The, the meditation one. Well, that was a that was a pretty tough one, and it that took me years, like maybe like ten years even, right, to really get that started. Even though I was aware of it, even though I had read that it was so good, and part of it had to do with the lack of a cohort, there wasn't anybody around me doing it. And gradually, there were people doing it. So part of it was I started going to this place called the Self Realization Fellowship in Los Angeles. And they are a meditation oriented kind of place, right? So and they teach it. So there you go. That's one way of doing it. And then once the iPhone came out, and you had the apps, and you had the meditation timer, uh, meditation, I, I used meditation timer when I first started. And that has a community. And just like any other social network, you make friends and you see your friend just it So that helped as well. So that was one thing. So you want a story that about a habit that was hard to establish. Hmm. Hmm. Well, they're all they're all difficult to establish. I mean, this is this is not. It's not.
1: It doesn't become any easier. Yeah, does it's, it? It just become more aware of the yeah, techniques. It's,
0: it's it's simple, but it's not necessarily easy. And what's even harder is getting rid of bad habits, right? Exactly. So, So I usually say that the opposite of happiness is not sadness. The opposite of uh, happiness is compulsion Mm. Uh, because compulsion, it just eats up all that time when you could be doing stuff that actually makes you happy. Right. And, and also it's compulsion. So it robs you (laughs) of, robs you of your own free will. I mean, what could be worse than that? Right. So it could be anything as simple as biting your nails to doing crack and something like crack or meth, or opioids, that can wreck your entire life. So what I found is that the meditation habit is one of these cornerstone habits that affects everything else, right? So once you have the skill of mental fitness, once you have the skill of basically metacognition, so metacognition is the ability to have thoughts about your thoughts, thoughts about your own feelings. So when you meditate, that's what you're doing because you're sitting there and you're noticing thoughts as opposed to being thoughts. You are not the thought. So we got a TV here in the room and your mind, your brain is like that TV, right? It's the thing that shows the programming and the thoughts and the random stuff that's happening is like the programming on the TV. The programming on the TV does not change the essential nature of the TV. The TV still is TV, right? And you can turn it off, TV is still TV. You can have, you know, Olympics on there or just clouds on there, still TV. So you are, your brain is the TV and programming happens. And the ability to identify with the TV screen as opposed to what's happening on the TV screen, that is metacognition. That is a skill you get through meditation. So, so metacognition is huge as a skill to make you aware of first establishing habits and recognizing pre-existing habits, recognizing compulsions, and noticing when you're starting to feel like, oh, I feel the compulsion coming on and then going to do something else and, and distracting yourself in a good way so you don't end up, Uh, With a compulsion.
1: You shared an interesting story over the dinner about how you've helped people overcome compulsive habits, Mm. addictions, for example, procrastination, of which many of us, so many of us suffer, including myself. And I find find this to be something that I do uh, want to overcome. And I've noticed meditation and cold exposure and uh, regular exercise do help with overcoming procrastination. Tell me a bit about the hypnotherapy work that you've been doing. You're a licensed hypnotherapist, and you have helped people overcome these, these issues.
0: Yeah, so I think of clinical hypnotherapy as a tool to go and alter your own software. So basically, you have this operating system that has been laid down by your experiences. So family... Friends, culture, country, all these things in various micro traumas and mega traumas, whatever has happened in your life, is the thing that has designed the operating system you're with right now. And there's all these bits and you know kludgy little bits of code that are there that you're not even aware of. And they're making you do certain things in certain ways that may not be serving you anymore. When you were six years old and there was some bully in the playground, maybe it served you to wear really like drab clothing and hide, right? But hey, you can't be doing that anymore, right? But that programming may still be there. So there's all kinds of stuff in there. And the question is, what kind of programming do you want? What would you rather be doing? So for example, I had one patient who wanted to quit eating chocolate, which is weird if you think about it, but- <laughs> It is, yeah. But why would you do that? <laughs> we ate we some really amazing chocolate yeah, one, that night. One <laughs> of the most pleasurable things in the world, right? But, you know, she made her case- And she explained it. And the thing about quitting eating a certain food group is that afterwards you don't miss it once you use hypnotherapy, because what happens is that that food group just becomes unappealing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It becomes as interesting as cardboard. So you don't miss it. There's no there's no pain. You just don't want it anymore. So so I, I did my thing and. And it worked. So I was not expecting it to work. Anytime I do hypnotherapy, it's kind of an experiment. I'm like, all right, let's see if this works. And oh my God, it worked again. Amazing. <laughs> so, and it's relatively straightforward to use these kind of tweaks on yourself. So for example, let's say, is there a food group that you would like to stop eating or something, anything
1: for me that would be, you know, like the the shitty types of hamburgers, like 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 the, the non-gourmet types of fast food for which I do have occasional cravings, but I recognize that uh, usually those are you know like super low quality.
0: Interesting. Okay, so do you want to do you want to play with this? Yes, please. Okay, good. So, all right, Simo, so uh, close your eyes and imagine that mm, not so great hamburger, right? That it's still that is still for some reason appealing, right? And on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being, oh, my God, that is so amazingly delicious, two zero 0 being, mm, nope, not appealing at all. So just give me an honest number for where that is right now. So in terms of appeal. Nine. Nine. Amazing. Okay. So very appealing, it seems. Okay, good. And when you see this picture of this bad burger on your mental screen, right, so a movie screen in front of you, how far away from you is it?
1: Um, it's uh... I'd say three feet away. Okay,
0: away. three feet away. i say one meter away. Okay, good. And is it color or black and white? Black and white is black and white. Okay, and uh, is it? This may seem silly. Was it stationary or is it moving?
1: It is stationary.
0: Okay, and is it fuzzy or is it sharp? It's sharp. Sharp. Okay, and does it have a border or is it just you know no border? There's a border. There's a border. Interesting. Okay. And what happens if you take the border off? Has it become more appealing or less appealing? More appealing. You take the border off, it becomes more appealing? Yes. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Okay. It's sharp. Black white. Great. Open your eyes. Pick out a couple items in the room and say them out loud.
1: There's a pen over there.
0: Okay. There's a pen over there. One more thing.
1: There's a glass over here.
0: Fantastic. Okay. Good. Close your eyes and, Simo, think about an item of food that you find utterly disgusting. Maybe, I mean, or or maybe even better, something that you used to like somewhat, but don't need more and find, like, totally gross and disgusting.
1: Yep, I found it.
0: Found it. What is it? Hot dogs. So when's the last time you ate a hot dog?
1: Two or three years ago.
0: Okay, so would you ever eat a hot dog again? No. No. Totally gross?
1: Totally gross. Okay,
0: great. On a scale of one to ten, zero to ten, where is it on the appealing scale? Mm, one. One. Okay, so not even. Okay, so not zero, but one. That's pretty good. Okay, now point to where you see this picture. Is it up, down, left, or right? Mm, uh, upper right. Upper right. Interesting. Okay, is it uh, black and white or is it color?
1: Uh, it's in color.
0: And is it uh, moving or stationary? It is stationary. Okay. Does it have a border or not? It does not have. Does a border. not have a border. Okay, and. Um, Is fuzzy or sharp? Sharp. Sharp. Okay, good. So, and uh, where was the picture of the hamburger? Was that down right, up left?
1: Uh, It's around here, like kind of centered.
0: Centered, of course. That's what I thought. Okay, good. So what I want you to do now, Simo, is to take that picture of the burger and move it so it's in the same spot as the hot dog. And I want you to make it color. So just make it color. And move it in that upper right corner, right? And take the border off. And then move it back, like, so it's 10 meters away. So now it's, like, far away, right? 10 meters away. And make it fuzzy. Make it, like, indistinct and fuzzy, right? Upper right still. Indistinct, fuzzy, no border. And, yeah, and just kind of make it color. Because the hot dog is in color, but the other thing was in black and white. So, and now on a scale of 1 to 10, how do you feel about it?
1: A lot less feeling. Give me a number. Uh...
0: Four. Four. So it went from a nine to a four in about fifteen seconds. Interesting. So okay, good. Now what happens if you make it even smaller? Make it farther away, just really tiny.
1: It becomes less and
0: less. less, and less okay, good. And and let's say like when it's over there you can actually see it kind of rotting and it's like got this really nasty smell to it. Maybe add a nasty smell, something you don't really like it all, it's like pfft, starting to rot. It's like, oh gross, right? So it's over there in that corner. Okay, so right now on a scale of one to ten, where is it?
1: Two.
0: Okay, good. So, what's going to happen from now on, Zemo, is every time you see that picture of that thing in the middle, right, of the, of the hamburger, shoop, it'll automatically go up there into the upper right-hand corner. In fact, open your eyes and pick out three items in the room.
1: So, there's a, uh, there's a sofa, mm-hmm. and uh, there is a can,
0: mm. and a bottle. Okay, good. Close your eyes. So, are you ready to make burgers, uh, especially of this kind, significantly less appealing? Are you cool with that? Are you able, are you cool with losing this, this, this pension you have, this tendency you you had in the past? Yes. Okay. Okay, good. So what's going to happen is I'm going to count down, I'm going to count to three. And every time I count to three, as soon as I say three, you're going to see the picture of the burger in the middle, right? The way it was when you first saw it. And it's instantly going to go, it's going to swish up into the upper right hand corner. It's going to be fuzzy, black and white, small, about like a couple of hundred meters away. And, uh, and smelly, too. And also in color. So just you make it look exactly like the hot dog, only even smaller in, in the corner up there. Okay, ready? So you got that general idea? Okay, good. One, two, three. And see it in there? And now... Keep it there and, like, nail it down with some staples so it's up in the upper right-hand corner spot. Same place as the hot dog. You can even keep the hot dog there just so it keeps it company so it knows what the neighborhood is. in. bad neighborhood. Okay, good. Open your eyes. Pick two items.
1: Cell phone and um, camera.
0: Great. Close your eyes. We're going to do this a couple more times. So, on count of three, you're going to see the hamburger vividly. One, two, three, and then instantly (laughs) put it up in the upper right-hand corner. It's gonna be fuzzy and distinct. It's gonna be borderless. It's gonna be color, and it's gonna smell a little terrible and be right next to the hot dog. Maybe even if it smells like the hot dog since you already don't like the hot dog. Okay, good. And then once again, nail it down, keep it there. Okay, good. Open your eyes, pick an item. Um
1: uh, there's a recorder. And Great. close your eyes,
0: good enough. So One last trial. So one, two, three. See it very vividly, the hamburger, bad burger. And send it up in the upper right-hand corner, right where it was. And notice how unappealing it is as it sits there next to the smelly, nasty hot dog, which you will never eat again. And it's all fuzzy and and indistinct and far away and in color. And there you go. Now open your eyes. On a scale of one to ten, if I were to present to you one of these bad burgers again, Three, three. Okay, good. So from nine to three, in about five minutes. Okay, good.
1: There's a significant amount of appeal lost. Like it's wow. Yeah. It's, it's um, wow it's, yeah. it's, it's so, powerful.
0: So the thing is, this is the software of your brain. The brain works in these pictures, and you know, in NLP and neural, link, neural program, we call them submodalities, And regular science is starting to catch up with this stuff. It's been working for like 40, 50 years, but it's, and it still works. So the idea is that if you change these pictures inside your head, then you feel differently. And that's all there is to it. And what I was doing there was I was repeating this loop such that anytime you have the image of the, uh, of the burger come up in the normal way it comes up in your head, which is you know a meter away in color with the border around it, boom, it automatically goes over there. You're creating a new circuit that said, boom, it automatically does that. And, and the more you do – if you do that a couple of hundred times, chances are you will find the burgers a lot less – you won't even want to eat them anymore.
1: So does it does it hold that, uh, that whenever I see or I see a picture of a burger or I think about the burger, I return to the
0: loop that we just created? Yeah. If you do that deliberately, it will burn in even more, right? So we just did a learning session. You did it five times, and that's something, right? That's a start. Right. If you do it 500 times – boom, suddenly that's a new pathway that your brain's going to do it. And then if you reinforce and say, yeah, that's good, then it becomes even more powerful. So, you know, you things that fire together, wire together. So you and if you do a little reinforcer at the end, then guess what? You have created this new pathway. In fact, you already have the pathway. It's just a matter of strengthening it. The other pathway you've had for much longer and a lot more iterations. So you have to work on this new one. And sometimes you have to do it deliberately. So you go to the burger place, instead of just smelling going, yes, you go, okay, I'm going to do this and see what happens. Boom. You do that a couple of times, suddenly less burger craving. Fascinating.
1: And the implication here is that I can also reinforce this through my own work yes. like with redoing yes. this exercise yes. in regular life yeah. when I'm exposed to this stimulus. Yeah,
0: And of course I just gave you guys a generalizable procedure, which is that, Figure out the thing that you don't want to do anymore, right? And then change it into something that you already don't like. And, and in your case, I picked something that you used to like, but don't anymore. And that is much more of the neighborhood that you want to send this to. Because if I made it something that's always been disgusting, your brain may not like that. It may not find that plausible. But hey, hot dogs you used to like and you don't anymore. So there's already a pathway for this. You're just kind of putting that in that same pre-existing pathway.
1: Amazing. And that's how you hack it. That's great. Ali, thank you so much for being on the show. This is a a truly fantastic topic that I would love to explore further. Where can people
0: find more information about you and about your work? So you can find most of my stuff on the blog happinessengineering.com. So that's all the stuff about uh, happiness and the five different topics. So relationships, food, exercise, life purpose, sleep, all that stuff is going to be on there, including some TEDx talks that I've done. And you can also find my stuff on relationships is mostly on tauofdating.com. So T-A-O-ofdating.com. Dating and relationship stuff is over there. And yeah. Your books are on Amazon. One of them, yeah, at so least it, one of them has been the
1: highest rated book in this category. Yeah, so, so,
0: yeah, so uh, the Tao of Dating, the Smart Woman's Guide to Being Absolutely irresistible, was the highest rated dating book on Amazon for four years straight. Now it's the second highest rated uh, but people still seem to find it useful. So you can find it on Amazon.com, Amazon.co.uk. And the book for men is on my website, tileofdating.com. And uh, you can also, I don't know why you'd want to read this, but maybe you're thinking about going to medical school. So if you if you go in on Amazon, you can also find Should I Go to Medical School? And that is a book that will help you make that decision through the experiences of dozens of People who have made that decision have been at various stages of their medical careers and they give honest feedback as to what's been going on. So short answer, no, don't do it. (laughs) Amazing.
1: Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, We should do this again. And I am definitely looking
0: forward to your new book. Thanks for having me. Good times.
1: Thanks, guys and uh, to check out all the show notes go to amber slash podcast we'll be putting them all there and on that page you can also find all the links all the books the resources that we discussed and you can also find uh links to dr ali's books on there thanks for watching and see you in the next episode superheroes
0: thanks for listening to the amber knight superhero podcast Please check out the links, show notes, and other episodes at ambronite.com slash podcast. That's A-M-B-R-O-N-I-T-E dot com slash podcast. Thanks again, and catch you in the next episode.